G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. It's pretty hard reading. Um, Here at Good News, most of the time, not all of the time, most of the time we're working our way through books of the Bible. Um, And this is just the bit that we're up to at the moment in Deuteronomy. We're in a series in Deuteronomy. Um, This approach means that we don't get to dodge the hard bits. We have to talk about them. We have to face them. But it's hard reading. Now, if you're like me with long readings, um, I mean, Alex, you, you read extraordinarily well. But with long readings, I kind of tune in and then I tune out a little bit and then I tune back in. But I suspect we all tuned in. Uh, for those two verses, didn't we? Two verses that grabbed us by the throat there. I'm talking about verse 34 of chapter 2. At that time, we took all of his towns, his uh, meaning Sihon, king of Heshbon, and completely destroyed them, men, women and children. And secondly, verse 6 of chapter 3, which is very much like it. We completely destroyed them. Um, Them is now Og, king of Bashan's people, as we had done with Sihon, king of Heshbon, destroying every city, men, women and children. I can't think of many more difficult verses in the entire Bible. Certainly none that are obviously more difficult and harder to come at as a modern reader. No, not just as a modern reader, but as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, as he is known, a Christian who finds these verses in my Bible, in God's Word to me, to us, it's hard reading. Folks, I count four reasons. Let's just talk about this briefly before we pray. Um, Four reasons why I reckon we find these verses deeply troubling. Uh, See if you agree. Number one, and probably the obvious one, I suspect, how can the God of Deuteronomy, who calls for war, who calls for total destruction, uh, who calls for this um, annihilation of these two people groups, how can he be the same God as the God that we know and delight in in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ for us and for our salvation? How can they be the same God? Is that the obvious question in our minds? Um, Here's reason number two, uh, troubling thing number two, a very simple one. I think we find it frightening that any human being might claim that God has sanctioned their war. Um, And notice Israel isn't just fighting a defensive war. This isn't a conversation about, is this a just war particularly? No, they weren't attacked. They were the aggressors in this case, in both of these cases. I think we find that that troubling. Uh, Reason number three that I reckon we struggle is that our world has seen plenty of so-called holy wars. And by and large, they're an unholy moral disaster each time. Uh, the, the ISIS is fighting one at the moment and still it drags on. Um, holy war just seems like a thing that if you're going to argue for the goodness of this one over there, then it kind of opens the door to the goodness of that one over there, do you see? Um, perhaps even more troublingly, how can I be sure that God can't or won't issue a call for another holy war today, which then I'd be morally obliged to take up arms in, we'd be, do you see? 
How can we be sure? And with that, we want, we want a bulletproof answer to that, don't we? We want something that is rock solid, some absolutely watertight logic. Otherwise, who knows? Perhaps God might tomorrow send another prophet call for war and off we're supposed to go. And lastly, fourthly, and I think we'll have to get to this somehow, it's probably not the thing that immediately springs to your mind, I think we sense, as readers of God's Word here in Deuteronomy, I think we sense that when Moses preached this stuff to the Israelites, he had a teaching purpose in mind. He was trying to teach the Israelites of the day something, not just to shock them um, with this story. See, we struggle to come at whatever that teaching purpose might be, whatever Deuteronomy 2 and 3 is supposed to be getting at for us as Christians today, because we get kind of hung up and stuck um, on the killing for obvious reasons, right? We struggle to hear whatever it is that this passage is supposed to be teaching us. Now, do you share those four struggles with me? Perhaps you have more as well, besides. Um, I, uh, with all that in mind, I'd like to pray, because I reckon we need to when we come to a bit like this. Let's pray. Our Father God in heaven, Lord of heaven and earth, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, Father, today we broach a section of your word that we find difficult for a whole host of reasons. For some of us, it's memories of actual war that intrude and almost take over. For some of us, with passages like this, it's the animosity and the the mocking, actually, of our non-Christian friends who ridicule our Bibles and our faith on these very subjects, and that ridicule, it gnaws away at us, maybe because we don't have great answers. For most of us, though, Father, in one way or another, we find our hearts troubled by a reality that we'd rather not confront. But confront it we must, because here it is in our Bible. So, God, please comfort us this morning with the gospel of Jesus. But, Lord, you've you've given us these words for a reason, we trust. So let our comfort not be thin and shallow, but may may we learn more deeply of Christ and of our Christian life, and of our God, who knows the end from the beginning, who is the same yesterday, today and forever. Strengthen and deepen, please, our knowledge and our faith and our walk in the Lord today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing I'd like us to do uh, this morning is the very hard work, actually, of sitting long enough in this passage of Deuteronomy that we get a sense of what it is and is not saying about this so-called holy war. Just by the way, I don't particularly like the term holy war, but I'm going to use it um, uh, um, anyway to refer to these conflicts sanctioned by God here in Deuteronomy 2 and 3. Let me suggest four ways that Deuteronomy quite carefully paints the picture for us here. First up, it gets us asking a very important question Um, but may I start with Bob Dylan. So Bob Dylan, in my opinion, um, no one tells a story like Bob Dylan in song and no one stings us with criticism in quite the same way that Bob Dylan did with or does uh, with his um, songs, especially his political critiques and so forth. So have a listen as he takes aim in this song, I'm just going to read you the words, at American military pride and nationalism with his song. Do you know the one I'm thinking of? God on our side. Can you recall that? It's from the 60s. 
um, from his Times They Are a Changing album. Um, anyway, so Bob Dylan starts describing himself as just a nobody, right, from Midwest America, but it builds over time this picture of arrogance that Dylan sees stitched into the fabric of American life, woven into American thought that he saw at the time, which he then wants to take apart and mock and expose as rank and self-righteous and more besides. Have a listen. Here it is. He builds it up from himself up to this picture of arrogance that he sees around him. He says, Oh, my name, it ain't nothing. My age, it means less. The country I come from is called the Midwest. I was taught and brought up there, the laws to abide, and that land that I live in has God on its side. Oh, the history books tell it. They tell it so well. The cavalry's charged. The Indians fell. Okay, he's talking about the war on the Wild West at first. The cavalry's charged. The Indians died. Oh, the country was young with God on its side. The Spanish-American War had its day and the Civil War too was soon laid away and the names of the heroes I was made to memorise with guns in their hands and God on their side. The First World War, boys, it came and it went. The reason for fighting I never did get, but I learned to accept it, accept it with pride, for you don't count the dead when God's on your side. A little further down, I've learned to hate the Russians all through my whole life. If another war comes, it's them we must fight, to hate them and fear them, to run and to hide and accept it all bravely with God on my side. But now we've got weapons of chemical dust. If fire them we're forced to, then fire them we must. One push of the button and a shot the world wide, and you never ask questions when God's on your side. Folks, come with me to, to Deuteronomy with this question, please. Would Bob Dylan's critique have hit its mark among the people of Israel back there uh, in Moses' time? Did the people of Israel have God on their side? Because I want to say the answer is no, they didn't because God wasn't on their side. And that's the first thing that we have to grasp if we're going to see this so-called holy war in the perspective that Deuteronomy actually puts it. Take a look with me just at the very last little bit, last couple of verses from last week's passage and tell me two things. Firstly, who were Israel fighting? So this is the last bit of last week's passage. Who were Israel fighting and was God on their side. So this is from chapter chapter 1, verse 43 to 46, just a recap from last week. And so I, that is Moses, I, Moses, told you, that is Israel, so I told you that you wouldn't listen. You rebelled against the Lord's command and in your arrogance you marched up into the hill country. The Amorites who lived in those hills came out against you. They chased you like a swarm of bees and beat you down from Sayir all the way to Hormah. You came back and wept before the Lord, but he paid no attention to your weeping and turned a deaf ear to you. And so you stayed in Kadesh many days, all the time you spent there. Okay, so two questions. Who, 
Who were they fighting? It's there in verse 44. Which people chased them like bees? The Amorites. Now, just by the way, if you were reading carefully before, Sihon and Og were Amorites, um, although probably a slightly different batch of them uh, from this particular bunch. The Amorites were kind of famous all the way back from Genesis 15 verse 16. They were renowned for the evil that they had carried on in before the Lord. So where was God as his people engaged this wicked mob of Amorites there in the hill country? Well, God was not with Israel. You find that interesting? God was not on their side. He went not with them to war and he listened not to their griefs and their tears beyond. Is that intriguing? Lesson number one, God is not on Israel's side. God cares not for our sides, do you see? No, Deuteronomy asks a very different question. Asks the question, will we join his, do you see? That's the conundrum set before Israel as they stand out there in the wilderness. Will you join God's side, O Israel? You wouldn't listen, you rebelled against the Lord's command and in your arrogance you marched. Now, on that front, into today's passage, Deuteronomy 2 starts very positively indeed. Deuteronomy 2, verse 1, Then we, um, Moses speaking with Israel, then we turned back and set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea, what? As the Lord had directed me. For a long time, we made our way around the hill country of Seir. All I'm wanting to say at this first point it, is when it comes to the war in Deuteronomy 2 and 3, Israel win not because God's on their side, as if he's got their back, they can do no wrong, he will sanction every whim of theirs for land and plunder. As a matter of fact, take a look further down. He's not on our side. It actually sounds like he's on theirs. Aspect number two of this passage God sure looks like he's on the side of the other guys, actually, for most of the passage. So follow the story here, we'll pick it up in Deuteronomy 2. Israel, don't they, uh, and it became a little bit confusing in the reading actually, they marched through country after country, region after region, land after land, uh, we are following as it went through. And I think it was supposed to be left with the impression that, dear Israel, you aren't nearly so special as you might think. And if you want to talk about God taking sides, well, have a look at chapter 2, verse 9, for instance. Then the Lord said to Moses, what did he say? He said, do not harass the Moabites or provoke them to war. Why? For I will not give you any part of their land. I have given Ah to the descendants of Lot as a possession. Or down in verse 19, when you come to the Ammonites, Don't get muddled up between Ammonites and Amorites, people. When you come to the Ammonites, do not harass them or provoke them to war, for I will not give you the possession of any land uh, belonging to the Ammonites. I've given it as a possession to the descendants of Lot. Down in verse 21, the Lord destroyed them, that is the Zanzamites, the Lord destroyed them from before the Ammonites, who drove them out and settled in their place. The Lord had done the same for the descendants of Esau who lived in Seir when he destroyed the Horites from before them. Right, so all I'm getting at here is Deuteronomy won't let us cast this war as a battle between one little God versus another country's little God. Do you see? No, the God of the whole world 
of Israel, but of the whole world, has taken an interest in you, O Israel, but he hasn't stopped being God of the whole world. Don't think he's stopped being God of all the nations. Don't think he doesn't have a concern for them, hasn't carried them, hasn't cared for them, hasn't given them uh, this land to Moab, given that to Esau, given this to the Ammonites, oh, and that to you, Israel, do you see? And let's be honest, most of the time, most of those nations, they wanted nothing of God, cared nothing for God, knew nothing of God, and yet I have given them as a possession for them And so, Israel, do not harass them. I'll give you nothing of their land. Do you see? As the psalm says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We're just painting a picture of uh, of the the battles before we get to them in the book of Deuteronomy, chapters 2 and 3. Very quickly, thirdly, third part of the picture, we should notice that our passage today, it actually includes the death of three peoples. Did you spot that? Not just two. There's Sihon and Og, Heshbon and Bashan. Uh, Who's the third one? See, the third one is an entire generation of Israelites. Israel are not above God's judgment. The third bunch who were wiped out, uh, we'll see it in verses 14 and 15, earlier on in Deuteronomy 2, are an entire generation of Israelite men. Now, sure, that, that is less dramatic and it's less violent than war, but they are culpable for their sin and God would not sweep it under the carpet. Just part of the picture here. So verse 14, chapter 2 of Deuteronomy, 38 years, 38 years passed from the time we left Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the Zered Valley. By then, that entire generation of fighting men had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. The Lord's hand was against them until he had completely eliminated them from the camp. The picture we're building up here is that God will crush sin. He will annihilate evil. He will judge it. And if that means even among his people, Israel, then so be it. And lastly, last thing that sets this apart from, I think, perhaps our misconceptions of of holy war is that, yes, Israel took the war to Sihon and Og. They were the aggressors. But did you notice Moses' first move? What did Moses do after he was told it's time to go and battle Sihon? And by the way, I'm not sure if this was actually God's instruction or Moses' creativity, even Moses trying to avoid the conflict. I'm not sure. Have a look, see what you think. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 26. From the desert of Kedemoth, I, that is Moses, I sent messengers to Sihon, king of Heshbon, offering peace and saying, let us pass through your country. We will stay on the main road. We will not turn aside to the right or to the left. And on he goes. See, here's what we can say. In the design, in the plan of God, in his orchestration of these events here, Sihon rejected his last offer at peace with God. Sihon, this king of these Amorites, famously immoral, and so they were crushed, king and country. Verse 30, but Sihon, king of Heshbon, refused to let us pass through, for the Lord your God had made his spirit stubborn 
Actually, that, that, that's another one that we could talk about afterwards. And if that ties you in knots, then please come and call me later. Uh, for the Lord your God made his spirit stubborn and his heart obstinate in order to give him into your hands as he's now done. And I don't think I need to reread the details of the actual conflict. I think we remember those. I think we'll remember them for some time. Folks, I reckon this, this whole holy war business, I reckon we run into trouble when we try to make it about one thing instead of remembering that Deuteronomy paints it as two. Um, as Deuteronomy paints it, the war on these Amorite kings is both, on the one hand, the gift of a generous God coming good on his promises to make a people who are sketchy at best um, into a nation to give them a land, people who don't deserve it, Israel, but he desires their good anyway and he is giving them a land as he's given lands to many other peoples before, a home, their own, for them from his hand. Why? Because God loves them, because he will provide for them, he sustains them, he protects them, he will fight for them, he will orchestrate all of history such that they will be blessed in his ways. Both that and we see God who reigns over all the earth, who is sovereign over all the nations, seeing all the nations, every plot and plan. We see our world's God moving in judgment to crush a people who refuse his peace and whose sin has been going on before him for so very, very long. We see an example of the ferocity of God's wrath and judgment on evil. We need to hold those both in picture, both loving gift and ferocious judgment. Now, does that soften our sense of terror at this war? I don't think it does, actually. Does that erode our compassion for the people of Heshbon and Bashan, the women and the children, does it make, it co make us cold and calloused towards them in their fate? I hope not, because they were people just like us. They were people, no, they were people very much like Israel who were on the other end of the stick. Then how can we make sense of it? Because what's so bad about them? Why did it happen to them? What's to stop God of making an example of more people today? I mean, does he? Is that what this is leaving the door open for? And that's where I want to say, no. In Deuteronomy, we saw an example of God's generosity and judgment. But in our age and in our day, we don't see just an example we see God's generosity and judgment come to fullness, come to fruition. Uh, would you please come with me to the cross of Jesus to see those things come together, the generosity and the judgment, the one crushed in judgment, the hope of new beginnings for all the nations. Uh, would you please come with me to 2 Corinthians? We'll take a couple of, just a few verses from a couple of chapters. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, first of all, if you're following along on your lap, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'll give you a chance to get there. Uh, and then very briefly in chapter 10, the section that Alex read to us before, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, firstly. 2 Corinthians in the New Testament. In the New Testament that's supposed to be lighter and easier and happier and present us with the, the loving, um, friendly God rather than the critical warrior God of the Old Testament. Well, I'm not so sure, friends. 
these things, generosity and judgment, come together in the cross of Jesus. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll just pick a few verses. So chapter 5, verse 14, let's pick it up there, shall we? Where, where Paul tells us, for Christ's love, oh, that's good, back in the New Testament now, Christ's love, there we are, happy, no, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one, what, died for all and therefore all died. Have a look down at verse 19. Paul's just unpacking the heart of our Christian faith here. Uh, uh, Chapter 5, verse 19, that God, halfway through, that God was reconciling, ah, that sounds good, was reconciling the world to himself where? In Christ, not counting men's, people's sins against them. Or down at verse 21, God made him who had no sin, that is Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, now on the one hand, that all sounds so positive. It's got love, it's got reconciliation, it's got, uh, the, you know, happy sounds, the righteousness of God. But let, let me ask you this, on what grounds does it hold out those things for us? This love and reconciliation, on what grounds do we enjoy such wonderful, beautiful blessings? Sins not counted against us, the hope of life, the righteousness of... On what grounds? I'll tell you why, and it's worse than Deuteronomy, and I think this is the thing that we need to see. It is because a thoroughly innocent man was crushed to death for us. One died for all. God reconciling the world to himself in Christ, meaning in his death. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Do you see, the reason that I'm confident that God will never again rain down judgment on some wicked mob of Amorites or wicked mob of Iraqis or wicked mob of Australians and call us to take up arms in that effort, the reason that I'm confident that that will never happen again is that he has rained down judgment already, do you see, in the cross of Jesus. And it didn't fall on the neck of peace-hating, famously immoral, far-off politickers it fell on the most beautiful life we have ever seen, the one innocent man from all of history, our death in his. Do you see the challenge? Ask not what those Amorites did to deserve their fate. Ask rather what love God has for you that Christ should suffer your fate and mine. Back with um, Bob Dylan for a moment as we move towards a conclusion. It's interesting, Dylan wrote that song. Um, He wrote it in, well, it was released in 64. He became a Christian sometime in the 70s, as best I understand it. But I really wonder whether he grasped the genius of his words there because uh, the second last verse say, he is pondering exactly the sort of stuff that we are pondering here today. If God is crushing Jesus, then whose side is he on? In whose interests is God working? Here's Dylan. Through many a dark hour, I've been thinking about this, that Jesus Christ was betrayed by a kiss. But I can't think for you, you'll have to decide whether Judas Iscariot had God on his side. Friends, God was never on Judas' side. He caused his son, in the orchestration of history, 
to be crushed to bring us over to his side. Do you see? And then Dylan, Dylan finishes with this. So now as I'm leaving, I'm weary as hell. The confusion I'm feeling ain't no tongue can tell. The words fill my head and fall to the floor that if God's on our side, do you know the line? He'll stop the next war. If God's on our side, he'll stop the next war. And friends, I want to say that the message of the entire Bible, when you put it together all the way from Deuteronomy through to Jesus, it isn't that God has changed. It isn't that God has gone soft on sin, gone cold on judgment, maybe lost his nerve for all of that stuff. The call of the Bible is to be part of the movement that stops the next war, by which I mean that sees men and women and children embrace the gospel of Jesus and escape the clutches of the death that we all have coming and find life in him and find hope in him and find a message to share with our fellow man. Uh, we'll close with this from 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and then I'll, then I'll pray. Where we're reminded, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with and not the weapons of the world. On the, on the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. He's talking about us carrying the message of Jesus with us wherever we go. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Can we pray together? Let's pray. Our Father God, firstly, we rejoice as a community of your people that we live now. It's a relief, actually. We live now with the full and clear picture of your judgment in the Lord Jesus, there for all to see. No more examples, no more foretastes of it. He came and he died and he rose. What a relief. But God in heaven, so rarely do we grasp the horror of the cross. So rarely do we grasp our indebtedness to Christ, our tragic plight apart from him, the debt of our very lives that we owe you, our God. We are so accustomed to playing down our sin. We read of judgment and we think oh, it must refer to others, the baddies out there. No, God, may we learn to see in the ferocity of war the character of a God who yet has patience with our world but who cannot abide evil and destructive and harmful ways and habits and lives. God, thank you for the message of reconciliation having reached our ears, that message to stop the next war, so to speak, the one message of Christ by which lives may be spared before your final judgment. And, O oh Lord, stir us up to rejoice in our Jesus, to delight in your mercy and forgiveness and so to share and speak and live and give to those around us the true hope for our whole world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.